Southern Conference week for ETSU as they'll try to knock off the top of the standings. Of course, there's only been one game in Sanford did win that, but they are the top of the standings. If you got to win a championship, you have to beat all the undefeated teams, something like that. I don't know. I'm kind of making stuff up. Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher, Sandos and the sidekick. Big, exciting show. I've got a lot of stuff to get over and talk about on Sanford. It's got me fired up for why I think this is one of the better series for ETSU in football. Uh, we also are going to talk Southern Conference football. We weren't able really uh, limited, as uh, I'm sure everyone enjoyed uh, Sidekick and Sandos uh, for a week. Sidekick and the Sandos. Uh, I've noticed that no one has been clamoring for it again. No, and, that's uh, true. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> In the same token, uh, you know, there wasn't like a, a whole lot of, all right, they are back. So, you know, it could go either way. The masses are way. not at the gates either way. No, right? no. Yeah. The only thing is the uh, our lone Furman fan that tunes in left and right was upset last week. But, again, we were limited last week, so – uh, I did send a message to Brad, uh, and you brought my attention to it, even though he did uh, include me in the tweet, but I didn't see it. But uh, uh, we will cover Southern Conference football because, let's be honest, we enjoy covering Southern Conference football, and there's just so much drama in football more so than basketball week in and week out. So we'll get to that. Uh, third segment we're going to do – you've been teasing. Are you going to still tease? It and is give here. It up? I'm teasing. You have to wait for another 30 okay. minutes, even though the tweet is going to say exactly what it is. I right. always, for some reason, act like it's not – something you can just read on Twitter or fast-forward to hear. Um, but it's, You're a pro like as we're recording you know, live. Like sure. We're better than people, you know? Like we, Brad Stone on Twitter says, previous in Southern Conference football, segment two, boom. Segment three actually was inspired by Twitter as well and a few Buccaneer fans getting involved in the summer. And so I took that to heart, people. I took that to heart. We are men of the people. We are here to serve, and we will do so in segments two and three. And then we will be very self-serving in bold predictions. Of course, where we will bring up the record of me winning you losing again. Uh, I think you're actually three and four to start, which is a pretty impressive Boom. record. That's a pretty impressive record. And I'm about to go three and zero oh this week. I'm one and six. Uh, that is the one thing that neither of us have ever done. We've never had no, an undefeated week. Never. No. Never had a per- perfection, if, if you will. If there is ever an undefeated week, I think that's the end of all predictions. It's over. That's it. It's going to be over after this week. It's like somebody going like between the legs 360 at Rucker Park. Mm. Like that shuts it down. It's a great That's reference. Game. Yeah. That's game. Um, so I'm excited uh, for all four of these segments, and uh, certainly excited for ETSU to move to four zero on Saturday afternoon. Okay, let, let's talk about that because here's what I sort of wrote down, and normally I bullet point everything just because I, as Mike knows, and most of you that have known me, I'm, I, I can't read, and so. I'm going to, I've written this out, but I'm not going to read it because it would be, go terrible. But this is why I think this is one of the more entertaining series, football for ETSU, because I think there's some great underlying storylines. I think the first one, obviously, ETSU knew first season Southern Conference. They opened the season with that spectacular win versus Western Carolina, which was the last time the Bucks won on September 25th, for those of you checking. 
Uh, actually, it's the only time. I think they're one in seven, one in six all time on that date. So they'll try to improve to two and six. But bookend sort of wins. They got the win against Kennesaw State to start the season. The sort of avenge football coming back loss. Um, and then a couple, I, I guess it was the very next game, they, they beat Western Carolina in Bristol Motor Speedway. It was 2-0. and uh, We started clamoring to get ranked and all kinds of other things. And then the, the, kind of got off the rails. ETSU took some tough losses into the season. Here comes, you know, top 15 Sanford. They're looking for a conference championship. They want to go to the playoffs. ETSU able, as we know by now, if you've heard the bumper, J.J. German, he got it. But he got it! And then, you know, the Bucks shocked the Bulldogs. So you have that. Then you have the entire offseason where the Bulldogs play that call the entire summer. Schedule each issue for homecoming. And then show no mercy by putting 42 points up in the first half and go on to shellac the Bucks in the ultimate revenge game that they had circled for a long, long time. In 2018, the drama, I think, obviously, of the outright championship. And on top of that, Devlin Hodges is trying to break Steve McNair's all-time passing record. So you have all of that going into that contest. Last year was interesting because it was sort of early, or I'm sorry, 2019 was interesting because it was sort of early in the conference slate. ETSU had had a couple tough losses, you know, I think because of all the wins they had in 2018, just karma kind of worked back. But that game was odd because if you remember, Quay Holmes scored down the sideline that was ruled out of bounds and they didn't have a good enough free play to overturn it. And, of course, it happened on ETSU sideline. And Stephen May, or uh, what is it, head creative service video guy, whatever his actual title is, but our main TV guru, has a beautiful shot in 4K. One of the referees happens to ask him, did you get that? So he shows him that. And Quay's heel was off the ground, was not out of bounds. And the referee goes, oof, should have been a touchdown, which always makes you feel better when something like that happens. But you have that. ETSU can't score Does in the red zone. Does it make you feel better? Does it make no, you it that does much not. worse? No, that was, was, <laughs> I could tell that was sarcasm or not. Okay. Uh, it was. Okay. I, I, didn't do, I didn't do a good job of it. So then we had ETSU first and goal to one. Not only do they not score a touchdown, they miss the field goal. So they don't score. And it was like a 21-yarder. So e- even more crazy. Then we have the ejection of Nasir Player for the targeting. And last but not least, Keith Coffey – Trey Mitchell was able to escape, chunks the ball about 50 yards down the field in a rainstorm. Keith dives, and the ball slips in between his hands, hits his chest, hits the ground. And so ETSU drops just a a tough contest. And then last year, spring football, first game for everybody in February. Nobody knew what to expect. They come down. They, you know, score a couple. Obviously, the rest is history. The Bucs defense comes back and plays. But there's an interesting kind of storyline. Because even last year, even if there was nothing really going in the game, everyone's playing their first spring February game. And so I just think there's been some interesting ties into that game. And to tie in a little bit last year, it's very rare, I think, that coaches knock it out of the park with an oversell of a player. But before that game, all we heard about was Elijah Hussey. And all he did was on the third series after being down ETSU down 14 nothing, and, and I think Sailors had just turned it over, he gets the interception. He has a 59-yard punt return, nine tackles, and two pass breakups in his first collegiate game ever as a true freshman. And so just outstanding numbers um, for Huzzy in that game. And, again, we get – and, Mike, you know this. We do a cookie. We get the overhype. 
and, and it's not to downplay. First of all, if a coach ever tells you they, they stunk in recruiting and they hate all their recruiting class, it's probably time for them to get out of the business, right? I mean, that, I mean, it's kind of their gig, right? Everyone feels excited about, uh, you know, every once in a while you get a coach say, man, we missed out on this one kid, but blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, they love all their kids. They work with them all that. But the overhype of Elijah Hussey, and because of just spring and basketball and everything else, it was one of the few years that I had not, like I had seen Bryson Irby practice. I'd seen some other guys, Quay Holmes, before he played practice. I'd seen Donovan Manuel that I talked about on air a lot. I'd not seen Elijah Hussey. So the sale job on him was one of those where I was almost skeptical coming in that it was coach speak, and then literally a half in, I'm like, no, this guy was as good as advertised. And his ball skills, I think, are better than advertised. There's a lot of members of the secondary, cornerbacks, anyone in the back four, back seven, whatever you want to say, players that are making plays and breaking up passes that can put themselves in positions that Elijah Huzzy puts himself in. I still think he's better at that than most. How many can make the plays that he has on the ball? Most of those people are wide receivers. (laughs) You play on the offensive side of the ball if you're someone – fast, agile, quick, have the skills of a defensive back, but can catch the ball, you're usually a wide receiver. In this case, Elijah Huzzy stays defensive back, and I'm glad he did because three interceptions in the spring was three of the five that ETSU had, and that could play a big factor in this game. Let's be honest. Sanford, and this is why I like the game for ETSU coming up Saturday, Sanford is a team that, as we know, item number one, not breaking news, top of the list, they throw the ball. What they've done this year that they haven't done as much in years past is turn over the ball when they throw the ball. Let's go over Sanford from spring to now because essentially it's the exact same. You heard Randy Sanders say on Monday in his press conference, looked at the two deep, got about three or four guys that are different. We know one of those is the quarterback position. Chris Oladokun transfers to South Dakota State. Of course, Liam Welch played the majority of the year last year, but you're looking at two deep. Oladokun was on it for most of the year for Sanford. Goes to South Dakota State, now the starter. Liam Welch returns as the starter for Sanford. I want to look at these numbers, go back and forth between the two, just for fun. And I want to see your impressions of these numbers. Liam Welch right now, 939 yards. That's a huge amount, obviously, through three games. Six touchdowns, six interceptions, 63% completion percentage. Oladokun, 395 passing yards, just two games, keep in mind, where Sanford's played three. Six touchdowns to zero interceptions, a 73% completion percentage, an efficiency rating of almost 75 points higher. He's at 202 to 129 for Liam Welch. Obviously, breaking down those numbers back and forth a little bit. And that's at South Carolina, uh, South 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 Dakota State, State, right. So, obviously, breaking those numbers down is pretty fun going back and forth this year. But I also am curious your thoughts on Welch making more mistakes and how the Bucs can take advantage of that. Well, well, let me just say this, too. Oladokun also went in as an FCS team and knocked off an FBS team yes. in Colorado State. And Liam Welch, no knock on UT Martin, but that's <laughs> a terrible, terrible loss for the league. The Skyhawks. At UT Martin. You like the Skyhawks? Well, I'm going to go over that loss uh, in, in detail okay. here in a second because it's it's head scratch. Uh, Ola, and they're just – it's very different, a lot more – I think Oladokun, and I said this um, – on the breakdown with Keith Brake and Fargo, who really had me on before the season to specifically for his audience at North Dakota State to talk about Oladokun being at South Dakota State and kind of breaking that down more than we talked early Southern Conference. And my impression of Oladokun was because I had actually saw a game on a Thursday night when he was at South Florida 
and obviously saw him in person. Sanford watched um, a few other games that he got in here and there. I didn't think the offense was particularly his strengths and what they were doing at Sanford. And Sanford is a system quarterback, I think, if you get the right quarterback doing things. And I don't think Oladokun was awful in the system. I just think he's a lot better when you can run, get some play action, sprint, you know, kind of sprint him out like he did against Colorado State, made some throws kind of moving, rolling pocket. And I think because Oladokun can run, I think that was more of his strengths, and I thought he would do very well at South Dakota State. I also said for Samford, they've got the right guy quarterback because he is more of what Chris Hatcher wanted to do. He's got a little bit more of Devlin Hodges' quick decision, you know, uh, up until really last game, very precise. And we'll get over, again, I'll talk about the last couple of games. Um, But I think for both quarterbacks, it's the rare situation where they both got in the right system, both able to go to the right area, and able to thrive. Four and three last year, just to go over a little bit of what we were dealing with in the spring versus the fall. Remember, two overtime results went against them. Lost to Furman, 44-37, and BMI, 38-37. Those were both nationally ranked teams at the time. Their only other loss to the Bucks, as we mentioned, Coach Sanders went over the two deep, only three or four differences. Their top six rushers were back, Jay Stanton, uh, Liam Welch, Demarcus Ware, Dakota Chapman, Ty Bowles, Montreal Washington, obviously you know, much better for his All-American status as a returner and also as their leading receiver this year, we can't overlook the running game because DeMarcus Ware had 118 and three scores last week, and he's the Southern Conference Offensive Player of the Week, probably the only thing that kept Quay Holmes from being the Offensive Player of the Week this past week. Top 11 receivers are back. Ty King, A.J. Tony, Washington, Michael Weiss, Kendall Watson, Jairus Creamer, Stanton, Torrance Pollard, J.R. Tranrino, Chapman, and Chandler Smith. Washington, we mentioned, leading receiver. And he's, I think, developed a lot as a target. Yes, we knew that he was athletic. We knew that he could be a game-breaker in special teams, but he's leading the Bulldogs in receiving with 245 yards. Uh, top six tacklers are back. Nathan East, Tremarcus Cheeks, Chris Edmonds, Ty Harry, Noah Martin, Armand Lloyd. Every player with multiple sacks is back. East has been the big man on the other side of the ball, on the defensive side of the ball. Leads the league in tackles, plus already six tackles for a loss, four quarterback hits, and a sack and a half. Seven interceptions through three games, and they come from six different players. This, to me, feels like it's going to be whoever makes the least mistakes. And that may sound odd because we're probably expecting in the neighborhood of, if we're going to have a Sanford-type game, 70 points between the two teams, ETSU, I'm sure, would like to keep it to, what, 50 or lower, ideally? I mean, last year didn't allow a team above 21 points, and your contention is, what is it, 24 or 25? 24, 24. So if a team is held below 24, ETSU is going to win, what, 9 to 10 times, 9 and a half, 10 times, whatever it is. Um, there's a lot of different things going into this game, but I honestly think it's going to come down to mistakes. And, of course, Randy Sanders says, you know, turnovers, kicking game, that whole thing that we know, backwards and forwards, like the back of our hands. Uh, but this specifically, to me, strikes me as a game where, in the passing game, you're going to see a lot of balls that could probably go either way. And whoever takes advantage of those opportunities the most is probably going to win the game. I, I think the, the interesting part was watching, and I'm going to backtrack to the last two games, UT Martin turned it over four times in the first quarter, which I don't know that I've seen in a game. And they were only down 17 nothing. Now, one of the turnovers, um, Sanford scored on three. The only one they didn't, they forced a turnover inside the red zone 
when Martin looked like they were going in to score, and so they had a little bit of a longer field, and so they, they Martin did a nice job making punt. But by halftime, they had turned it over twice and was down 24-20. Yep. And the momentum was completely gone. Same thing. I'm watching West Carolina. They're up 21-3. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Ware and his great game. He had almost 100 yards and two touchdowns in the first half. And then all of a sudden there's some interceptions. And, and now it was a downpour the entire game. It was a nasty game. They had a two-and-a-half-hour delay in the first quarter. The weather was just raining. It was wet. It looked miserable. It, it's hard. So you know it's bad when on TV you're just watching and you're like, that looks miserable. Like, it just didn't look like it was fun. And maybe that led to some errant passes. But here's where I was confused. So, Welch threw a couple jump balls. One, he didn't get away with. And one, I don't know what the safety was doing for Western, but he almost slipped and fell. Washington kind of like, excuse me, caught it behind him and backed into the end zone for a touchdown. There were a couple passes that should have been picked off, but there were two or three passes as the game went along that Welch either had miscommunication with the receiver or completely missed a guy by 10 yards. So, and I know if the apologist Matt Wiljum uh, hears this, it's the receiver's fault, and the quarterback always knows where he's throwing the ball. But there's a couple balls thrown to areas that I'm not real sure that's how it worked out. And here's why I'm always confused about Sanford. You mentioned Ware had the great game. He's running up and down the field. The more interceptions they threw, the more they threw the ball. (laughs) I, I, I don't get it. The more, you know, they're gashing them in the run game. They're able to get big plays. Welch has actually been strip sack fumbled a couple of times on the season. Um, Martin, again, not known for its vaunted pass rush, just listening to the Martin radio crew that was dubbed over the ESPN call, they were getting home with three guys. So if Welch doesn't have time or you take the first read away, that offense struggles. And I think that's where Oladokun struggled. I think that's why Welch is struggling because people right now have been able to take away the first read. Now, I'm not worried so much about interceptions. Now, ETSU certainly can throw some, and Chris Edmonds is one of the the bet a former walk on to win Player of the Week two or three times last year for Sanford, and to barely narrow out missing the Defensive Player of the Year behind Jared Folks had a one-handed Odell Beckham Jr. type interception, like hand behind his head against Western Carolina, that looked like it was a sure touchdown, was able to snag it away. So they are capable of that. The problem for ETSU has been fumbles. Jacob Sailors, and I know you love to keep up with uh, this particular stat for Sailors on his yards per yes, carry. I do. Yes, I do. Okay. 22 carries, 87 yards against Sanford in his career. So 3.95 or something. Which isn't baffling. terrible for most. No, but it's baffling because he's averaging like seven for his career. Yeah. Well, and if you flip it, you know, flip side, Quay Holmes had a good matchup. He's averaging six and a half yards a carry. So not he had 19 carries, 125 yards last year for that. But also a couple fumbles for Sailors. And then we know Tyler Rydell had a fumble. We know Trey Mitchell had a strip sack fumble. So the fumbles have been a huge issue for ETSU in the games against Sanford. And Sanford's one of the better teams at picking off passes. They had an INT return for a touchdown against UT Martin. Ty Herring's out there. I mean, they've got plenty of guys that can intercept passes. And that's actually not what scares me. What scares me is that ETSU has put it on the ground an average of two per game the last three times they played. And so that's what I'm concerned about is because those are almost killers because you don't see that coming. It's one thing if you're taking a shot down the field, you know, 30 yards and somebody picks it off, fine. You could always sell it, glorified punt, whatever. 
you know, if you're getting picked off on a hitch or a slant, that's a different story. And, again, I watched Sanford pick off a slant uh, against Martin and pick off virtually a, a comeback route, a little 10-yard comeback route against Western Carolina. So they are capable. But I'm concerned because ETSU have been going in for scores and fumbled three of the four times the last two years. And so that's what, you know, you're taking points really off the board. The first two times, first two of the first four drives, Sailors fumbles inside the 30, and then Rydell fumbles inside right at the well. The Bucks didn't start the play inside the 20, but he had fumbled inside the 20 because he had scrambled and, and got in there, so virtually taking away a couple of red zone chances. So that's my concern. It is turnovers. Both are plus three. ETSU right now 24-0 points off turnovers versus their opponents, which is impressive because they've turned it over three times and not given up any. But even more impressive is the fact that Sanford's forced 10 turnovers in three games. Now, they've given up seven, obviously, because it's plus three, but 45 points off turnovers to just giving up 17. So both teams have been excellent at making teams pay, and I think that goes back to just me helping your point even further uh, about turnovers and which one can take care of the football because it has been what both teams have thrived on this season. The fact that they've only given up 17 points off turnovers is pretty impressive because they've turned Absolutely. it over <laughs> The UT Martin game, to me, was Welch's biggest mistake. So the Bulldogs take over, 90 seconds left, down six. And you'd think this is the moment the offense shows their worth. Welch defending Southern Conference Player of the Year, preseason Offensive Player of the Year. And first play, throws a pick right into Dakar Stevens' hands, Skyhawks kneel it out. And... I'll be interested to see if things start rolling against the Bulldogs. Will the last couple of games act as kind of demons, ghosts in their head? Because, as you mentioned, it was 17-0. They were up on UT Martin, 21-3 against Western Carolina. I counted, in those cases, five straight scores allowed to UT Martin and 28 straight points to Western Carolina. And both of that came within, like, a 13- or 14-game-minute span. So... Not only have things snowballed on Sanford, but they have started rolling downhill extremely quickly. And so, say it's, you know, a 10-7 game, Sanford's on top, and, you know, ETSU, let's say, scores a touchdown 14-10, and then they get an interception off Welch. And the defense is backed up a little bit, you know, say ETSU is just on the edge of field goal range, you know, do they fold? And are there a couple more scores coming? And does the game get out of hand quickly? I think, obviously, the start to this game is going to be big, as the start of every game is, but it hasn't been the starts to games that have hurt Sanford. Sanford's been great at the start of games. It's been the middle portion of the game where I don't know if they just lose focus. I don't know if they you know look at the scoreboard and say, okay, we can kind of pack it in a little bit. Um, I don't know if the philosophy changes. As you said, if you're throwing interceptions and turning the ball over a lot, your running game is going well, why don't you run it? So I don't know if coaching is an issue there. Um, talking with you know Coach Hatcher, as usual, he's very upbeat. And oh, he's fun to talk good. to. Oh, he's a great guy. I mean, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal individual. I always enjoy the conversations. He didn't lead on like there's any worry about those runs of play that have gone against Sanford. But it's back-to-back games, and now you're in league play. If you enter a third straight week, that to me, as a former player of a college sport at a very low level, and this is where we were mentally weak and could not ever get anything done. <laughs> Middle midges. Uh, yes. We would have said, oh, boy, here we go again, if that first or second thing started to resemble what it did the last couple of weeks. You get to three weeks in a row, and that can really start to play mind games with you. So I wonder how that will be if ETSU is able to make a even a few big plays in a row, 
game-changing plays, you know, get a chunk play, you know, get a turnover, something like that, and how Stanford responds because it hasn't appeared in the first two games, um, or I should say the last two games that they've played, like they'll be able to respond well this week. 26 straight, 28 straight, you just said it, and that's sort of my last point. Again, we did separate research, we've not discussed this, and the things that we think could happen and play out exact same. I wrote middle midget was actually I wrote down and how will they respond after the first turnover because they will turn it will be a turnover and then how will they respond and the other thing is what you know Sanford has like nine quarterbacks does he dare at some point in time make a move now the only other person to throw a pass this season is his son but he's not even listed as the number two backup. Well, he's five eight one sixty three. That's about Mike Allen. So, size. And, and, division one field. and I want to say it's K. Oh, it's like number fifteen. It's Cade something or another. But he's listed as the backup. He's not throwing a collegiate pass yet, as well. And he's listed as the backup. I think the son gets in because it, they were beating uh, Tennessee Tech by like a drum, and they let him throw two passes and call it a day. Cade Blackman. So, Cade Blackman is the listed backup. He's not throwing a pass yet. In college, so I'm curious if things go awry. Is it oh boy because of what happened last year? Is it oh boy because of what they've seen this year? Here's the one thing I'll say: Sanford, if you believe in numbers, Sanford is averaging 58 points per game in our last two SoCon home openers. 58. Now one was a four overtime game. Okay. Now he scored 61 in that one. Okay. So he still scored still. 55 in the other game in regulation. So, how about this? I'll take it a step further. In their last five SoCon home openers are averaging 40.6 per game. They have come out, on, and they've played different teams. It wasn't like they just played Western, Western Carolina, Carolina every time, right? <laughs> uh, the four-overtime game was the Citadel. They played Wofford. I want to say they've actually played Wofford twice, and they played Mercer. So, again, it's, it's, been, it's not just one team where they've been able to dominate the home opener all the time. So they're averaging, you know, 40.3 points. Now they're giving up 35 in those five games. So, again, that points to a, as you mentioned, a 70, 75-point combined total, which ETSU certainly cannot have. In eight games, all-time ETSU versus Sanford, the Bucks have never broke uh, or never scored higher than 27. Really? And that was in the 2018 loss. Yeah, 38-27. So the two wins were 15-14 and then 24-17. So 27, and that even goes I'll back to that. the 80s in the other three games that they played before um, Sanford and ETSU were in the same conference. So just throwing it out there, and ETSU has never won in the three appearance. They played more in Johnson City, played five in Johnson City, three down in Birmingham, and ETSU has not won any of the three games down in Birmingham. So they'll be looking to make history. I encourage you. It's on a number of fronts. On, right. on a date that they're winning six on all time. So, wow. But they did win their last one. You're not so. painting a pretty picture. I don't know if I – Well, I may have foreshadowed some stuff for bold predictions, too, just throwing that out there. Bottom three in time of possession every year since Chris Hatcher took over at Sanford. And four times during that stretch, they've been dead last. Now, we know that's kind of by design, right? Yeah, I don't think he cares. I don't think so either. This year, though, it's even more drastically removed from the rest of the league. 23 minutes and 20 seconds. That would be, if the season ended today, the lowest in his tenure. So here's how I'll judge that. The one year that he was in the top half, was 2019 when they ran the ball more because to his own admission, he didn't think he had a very good team. So he believes, and by team I mean offense because that's all he cares about, but <laughs> offensively he still believes in the team and what they're doing. If they come out and start running the football, 
and not that they shouldn't because where's uh, and even Jay Stanton's backup are very solid running backs. If they come out, run the football, run the football, run the football, and don't throw it as much, then I think he's lost confidence in the offense. If he's running some just to mix it up, but he's still throwing 40, 45 passes, 50 passes, then he still has confidence. But if that pass total goes from 48, 45 to 30, now that tells me it's back to 2019. He's lost confidence in the offense, and now he is trying to shorten the game for his own good as opposed to trying to run up down the field. I don't think he's there yet, but we will. I mean, we won't know until we get to the game. I think he still believes in Welch in the offense, and you're going to see 45 to 50 passes thrown, and where we'll get you know whatever they'll have 20 rushes. They run 70, 75 plays, 80 plays. So, I mean, but if he throws 45, 50 times, he's still believing in the offense. If that drops to 35 to 30, then I think he's starting to lose confidence. One final thing: special teams are a strength for Sanford. So another area that is always talked about is swinging the game one way or another. They're third in the league in punting, first in kickoff coverage, second in punt return average. We, of course, yeah, Washington's Washington is the best in the league. Three of four in field goals. Not that I think we're going to see a lot of field goals. And 16 for 16 in points after. So pretty much across the board, it is a strong special teams unit. And ETSU, the one thing that they – were nitpicked on last week from Randy Sanders, at least post-game, was kickoff coverage. They thought they had an edge, and then they gave up big plays. Right, and now Sanford is not particularly good in kickoff return average this year. That's the one area where they're not, but knowing what week ETSU is coming off of and knowing who they have back there, you imagine that Sanford is kind of licking their chops a bit and already knowing that they are essentially better than every other team in the league when it comes to holistically on special teams and they can possibly get that element of their special teams on track this week, that is an area of concern for me, as we talked about turnovers being the other. So those are the two for me this week. And, I mean, if they can hit a couple of big special teams plays, if they don't turn it over, I think that Sanford's going to win the game. But I think they're going to turn it over, and ETSU has to be on point in every element of special teams this week. I I think uh, it was interesting to hear on the coaches' show the thought on punting, I don't care if it's 35 yards. I just don't want to return. You can kick it, and I thought this was interesting. Great, you kick it 60 yards, but if you outkick the coverage and they can pick up 10, 15, 20 yards because they get a full head of steam, then sort of your net punting goes away. Well, and momentum. Right. I, I you just feel good about that if you're the other side. I, I thought that was very interesting that, you know, great that we may lose actual punting yards, but if they're all fair catches, uh, that was interesting. Also, Zach Williams done a nice job kicking uh, since Mitchell Finneran has grad transferred to Purdue, uh, and he was one of the league's best field goal kickers, and so far, Williams has been up to the task, and you're right, they haven't missed a beat. So, that'll be interesting, 3 o'clock, Eastern, 1.30 pregame show on the Buccaneer Sports Network. When we come back, we'll take a look around the Southern Conference. Right after this timeout, Sandoz Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you play. The Tennessee Education Lottery. Game-changing, education-benefiting fun. Breakdown. 554 
start me start go i'll start mm-hmm. i think the reason that we have held off a little bit on the southern conference football coverage is we weren't in league play you know now we have our first quote unquote full league week now there is an oddity in the scheduling i'm not quite sure why in a nine team league you have two teams off in the same week now you remember i know there's a filing cabinet of past schedules in your head from the Southern Conference, at least in the last seven years. Is that usual? Because I looked and I was like, okay, the Citadel and Chattanooga off this week. Why isn't just one so we can have another SoCon football match? Well, one of the teams actually plays mid-year FBS game, which is odd, because normally it's either the beginning or the end. Right. So one of the two, one of the three teams that aren't playing this weekend, I think there's three teams, right? Yeah, there's nine. Yeah, they have well, there's two that aren't playing at all. There's one that's playing non-conference. Right. Yeah. But, but uh, the fact that two aren't playing at all, though, like just play each other. Right. Okay. So... They, uh, because of, basically the SOCON works backwards like a lot of teams. You turn in your money games, those FBS games, and then they were reworked the schedule. That's why a few years ago, you remember Furman and Wofford played the open air and everybody was up in arms, but just because of the FBS schedules for everybody else in the league and theirs, it's just how the schedule had to fall. And because you're limited in the number of weeks because you have to end the season in a certain time for playoffs. So it has happened. Um, it actually happened a few years ago in the middle of the year, which was odd, uh, that like three teams had the bye week. And I, get, and I guess maybe you'd prefer the bye week as opposed to the third week um, or as opposed to just one team. But there was, a, I think it was 2019, there was three teams in like week seven all had a bye week, and I thought that was odd then. So it's not an, it's odd, but it's not unusual. Mercer at Furman. Let's start there. Mercer was 5-6 and six in the 2020-21 season, 5-3 and three in the league, lost five of their first six from the fall to the spring, won four of their last five. In his first year at the head of a Division One program, Drew Cronick led his team to a fourth-place finish. Carter Peavy back at QB, Harrison Frost gone. In Frost's place, they've installed Fred Payton, who is actually sharing quarterback duties with Peavy and has, quite frankly, been better than Peavy. Threw two touchdowns against Alabama in what I think was probably a, a moral victory for Mercer. I believe they scored 14 points and only lost by like five touchdowns instead of what you'd expect, uh, seven or eight touchdowns. Three of the top four running backs returned, the one exception being DeAndre Johnson, who led the team in rushing. Tyree Devzen, also gone, was fifth in terms of rushing last year, but a former sophomore All-American. Nine different players have carried the ball five times or more this year, the leading carry getter against Alabama being Fred Davis. Top three receivers outside of running backs returned, Ty James, Ethan Deerham and Drake Starks. Starks, nothing to show for this year yet, but sophomore Devron Harper is leading the team in receiving yards, and freshman Parker Roble leads the squad with six catches. Top seven tacklers are back. They got after the QB last year, 29 sacks. A lot of those are back, but only two sacks so far. It is a young team, only seven graduates or seniors. Seems impossible to tell what they were off of last week, obviously, because face Alabama, who knows. Uh, Furman, 3-4 and four in the league in the spring. They dropped out of the rankings in the coaches' poll this week. They are receiving votes. Only two losses in their first five from last year, and they were by three combined points. Fell off at the end of the year, losing to Mercer in the Citadel by multiple scores as they 
put up just 21 points in those two games. Starting quarterback Hamp Sisson is back. He struggled against North Carolina State, 8 of 19, but pretty solid against North Carolina A&T and Tennessee Tech. He's thrown all but four passes, or I should say three passes this year after throwing all but four last year. Top two tailbacks, Devin Wynn and uh, Devin Abrams are back. Abrams is doing the majority of the ball carrying, 44 carries to just 12 for Abrams, as well as Dominic Roberto having 12 carries. Top 10 receivers are back, including Ryan DeLuca, Ryan Miller, and Zach Peterson. Freshman Joshua Harris has been added this year. He's tied for the team leading catches with Miller. 14 of the top 15 tacklers are back, aside from Darius Curse, a defense that has logged one of the two shutouts this year against SoCon teams, or I should say four SoCon teams against Division I opponents. Chattanooga over North Alabama, 20 to nothing, and the Paladins against Tennessee Tech the same week. 26 to nothing. I'm excited for this game. I think that Furman has a slight edge, uh, but Mercer, let's be honest, uh, since Drew Cronick has kind of hit his stride there, they have gotten better and better and better, and I don't think they're going to be a pushover in the league this year. I think <coughs> Ham Sesson has done the, the best job. Well, not really him. I think Furman, Coach Hendricks, I think specifically um, – the offense coordinator um, has done a great job of sort of switching some offensive philosophies to get it to some of Hampson's strengths. Some of the best plays I think they have are simple ones. I mean, we just call it the hot pass, but basically a quick, whether it's a true RPO or a fake to the running back and then just a little soft toss over the top of the defense to the tight end. It's just streaking on the seam route. It's really only about an 8- to 10-yard pass, but they've been able to gash people with Ryan Miller because the running game is so strong. They do have still the three-back principles. Uh, George Corral's offense coordinator, Elijah Blank, he was the legend here in the state of Tennessee for the multiple uh, double-digit state championships here. But George Corral's done a good job of, I think, putting Hemp Sisson in the right spots. You throw the ball near DeLuca, he's about as sure-handed as any human being on the planet. Um, run game, everything you said. I think Mercer still is trying to fool people, and I don't know if that is just the overall plan. I thought maybe the spring because maybe the right personnel wasn't there. But they are still running multiple backs, sets, um, trying to get motion going one way, trying to get the line going one way, and basically a running back with no protection going the other way. I mean, not even like a true reverse where you've got a couple people peeling back. I mean, just wing tee principles, veer principles. I mean, just three-back principles. they got power game. They're trying to throw the ball deep. I mean, it is a, you have to be on your toes when you play Mercer, but I think Furman – especially that game is at Furman, is always very tough there. I think because of last year's game and how Furman kind of limped to the finish line, I think they will be ready to go. I think this will be a high-scoring affair, something like 34-30 or 34-27, but I think Furman will avenge that loss because I think what they've been able to do offensively with Hampson is far more than I thought they would be able to do. And, um, yes, I think you can throw out the – the game against Furman, similar to I think you can throw the game against uh, Mercer out against Alabama, right? I mean, I think we can toss those games out. The thing for me, Mercer hasn't played a like opponent yet, right? They played point sixty nine nothing. They played Alabama. They could be right. further ends of the spectrum. So I think because of Furman having a big win against North Carolina A and T, going on the road beating Tennessee Tech, I think Furman. It'll be a shootout, but I think Furman will um, start the season one and zero. Furman two and one Mercer. 
one and one overall. Wofford and VMI, one and four in the spring were Wofford. Four losses by 26 combined points. Much like the Citadel struggled with COVID opt-outs and injuries much of the year, missing the ETSU game because of the lack of defensive linemen available, then opting out of the final two games of the season against Western Carolina and Furman. Speaking of two games, that's how many they played in the fall. 28 points per game given up was the most since 2009 back in the spring. They're giving up 27 through two this season. Quarterbacks Jimmy Weirich and Peyton Derrick are both back. Derrick started the season, went the whole way against Elon, but has been bad both games he's played. Weirich saw lots of time in the Kennesaw State game, and at least he didn't throw any interceptions. Derrick has three through about five quarters of play. Four of five players with more than 100 rushing yards from the spring are back. Urban Mulligan, Nathan Walker, Jamari Broussard, and Peyton Derrick. Uh, they're all getting chances in the backfield in the running game. Ryan Lovelace, the second-leading rusher, is the only one of the top five not back. Only one of the top five receivers are back, that being Landon Parker. He has just one catch this year, though. The most used receiver, R.J. K.O., has six catches. Top 13 tacklers back, Joe Beckett, Brandon Brown, John Beckley, Michael Mason, Jahir Anur, Rhett Russell, Donovan Anderson, Miles Richardson, Logan Barnes, T.J. Neal, Jim Barnes. Harris is more. Jaheim has. Uh, we got Hazel, another one? Jaheim Hazel. <laughs> Hazel, there it is. Beckett, Brown, and Mason Holy are cow. their three leading tacklers this year. Again, it's uh, Brown, Mason, and Hazel, uh, largest roster in school history at 110, and you remember that Josh Conklin had the famous quote that there were always going to be a couple of years of oh my bad football after a couple of years. Is of it Mott's starting to crush him, or do I need to wait? They've run it 69 times, thrown it 46. I'm going to go ahead and assume that's still too much throwing for you. I just want to say this. Their last game, I'm going to read this stat to you. One team had 339 yards rushing. One team had 67. Much throw. And we're talking about Kennesaw State and Wofford, both teams that are three-backs traditionally. 28 pass attempts last week for Wofford. 15 completions, 156 yards. 67 yards rushing for a Wofford team. And I know Josh Conklin, the big thing, I, I went to at links. I've talked to several other, not in the Southern Conference, but FCS sort of broadcasters to get their feeling after this game, I'm so fired up at Josh Conklin. And, and I should have no tie to Wofford, and I don't. I care if they win. It just, I get that he came in and said, I want to take them to levels they've never seen before, and to do so, you need to switch the offense. Fine. I'm okay with that. you got a philosophy, you got whatever. He tried to do it immediately without the right personnel. I'm looking at his personnel now. He doesn't have the right personnel. So if that is your game plan, do something about the personnel. Or don't make the change. I don't understand. It can't be that difficult to see you're getting your eyeballs beat in. I'm seeing it. I'm not that smart. So I don't understand. And he's got one foot out the door. He was almost, and this would have been the greatest Josh Conklin story, even further than his quote. He was close before the spring season to leave to become the Tennessee's defense coordinator to only find out Pruitt gets fired a month and a half later. How great would that be? That would have been the only thing to make Josh Conklin's story even better. I know you would have Oh, I would have. So I don't understand. And he was, and the thing that really bothers me is that he was so pompous about it in his first couple of, you know, sort of media uh, days where he talked about taking the next level. They were in the semifinals a few years ago. They've been to the quarterfinals recently. You've done nothing but get your eyeballs beat in and taking a proud team and go down. And your excuse is, well, you know, they're, they're down a few. Have you seen the last decade of what Wofford's records was? So when was the downtime for Mike Ayers? When he first took over 25 years ago? Sure. I, I don't get it. You took something, you ruined it, you've made terrible excuses. 
you got your eyeballs beat in by Kennesaw State, who did to you what you should do to teams, 339 to 67. You threw the ball 28 times with Jimmy Wyrick. Jimmy can run, by the way, if you want to run, Jimmy. I've seen him. Very athletic kid. I feel bad for Jimmy. Jimmy, I'm sorry. Find somewhere else to play. Anything else I think about Josh Conklin? I hope that in nine days when Wofford is in Johnson City, you do not run into Josh Conklin in any back alley because I would have probably waited for this rant until after October 2nd. Now, here Josh, the, if you're listening, I had nothing to do with this, and uh, I, I, I just think wa- you're a very fine gentleman. I just want to say this, too. I hope he comes back at three back and runs four back yards <laughs> and, and then double birds me on the way out. Yeah, that would be great. Honestly, right. Can, all right, talk about yeah, 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 please, please transition for me. <laughs> As if there's any way to transition off of that. Six and two in the uh, spring, six and one in the league, of course. The league champions, number 17, I believe they're ranking at the beginning of the year, receiving votes right now. Yeah, somehow they lost an FBS and dropped. I'm not sure how that worked. Yeah, me either. Uh, Won their first SOCON title since 1977 in the spring, lost to national number one, James Madison, 31 to 24 in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Their first winning season since 1981, uh, first in 40 years. From the spring season, uh, only regular season loss was TTSU, 24 to 20. Quarterback Seth Morgan, whose numbers were almost identical to Reese Udinsky, minus a decent amount of yards per game, but still above 70% completion percentage. SoCon freshman of the year. Obviously, he's back, but he got hurt against Cornell, and Colin Ironside came in and was honestly better than Morgan has been this year, who's thrown four interceptions in two games. Uh, top three rushers: uh, Corey Brady. Uh, Morgan and Rashad Raymond handling the vast majority of the carries again this year. Every player that caught a pass back, including Jacob Harris, who won SoCon Offensive Player of the Year. Leroy Thomas is actually leading them in catches right now with 19. Only one of the top five tacklers is back. This was our concern when we previewed the league about a month ago. Defense for VMI. Can they be what they were? Stone Snyder is back, and uh, Scott Wackenheim said, as long as he's there, I feel pretty good about our defense. But only one of the three with more than two sacks was back. That, again, Snyder, who is the SoCon Defensive Player of the Year. Overall, they returned ten starters on offense, six on defense for a defensive unit that gave up 174 points in eight games last season. They hadn't given up less than 300 in a full year since 2003, so that was about 21 points per game in the spring. They've given up that or more every game this year. A couple of questions going in. Can Ironside do what Morgan did in place of Udinsky last year should the Morgan injury be serious and he can't play this weekend? Is this defense what we believed it may be this year, backsliding to being more of an average unit? Is VMI got to the point, I think the first question for Scott Wackenheim, is is VMI got to a point that they are Samford and you can plug and play? And if so, to me, that's the perfect, that's, you know, if Josh Conklin, Wofford, they seem to insert any human being in the triple option didn't miss a beat, right? I think Sanford, for the most part, has inserted quarterbacks. They've all been successful. Now, we could argue to different levels, and Hodges was on another level, but still, they've been successful. Now you've seen the third quarterback in an eight-month span, seven-month span, from Udinsky to Morgan to Ironside, and they've all been successful. So, to me, Scott Walkenham doesn't get enough credit for taking VMI to a level to where you can plug and play people um, now, having Jacob Harris out there to catch everything certainly helps. I mean, to be honest, the league is stout. I mean, it's really known for its run game and always has been. And still, I would argue, with not just the the three backs, but you look at Chattanooga's one-two punch, you look at ETSU's one-two punch, you look at Furman's one-two punch, Mercer's got running back. I mean, it's still running back heavy, but, you know, when you can roll out a Jacob Harris and a Ryan DeLuca and a Washington – and you're looking around the league. I mean, there are some solid receivers, and I think Harris is probably the best in the league because he can do it all. He 
He's big and strong enough to go inside, catch passes, break tackles. He runs precise routes. He has great hands. He's fast enough to go deep. He is a matchup nightmare for people, and that's probably why I give him more of an edge than I would uh, either a DeLuca or Washington's a little small in stature. Huzzy is not as strong physically, and it's not like Huzzy um, isn't uh, developed and doesn't have muscles, but my goodness, Harris is just a, a specimen. So Ironside is built, plus they've been able to run the ball with Brady, as you mentioned, some others. Defensively is where they have struggled. Stone Snyder be the guy in the middle. Will they be able to hold him down? This game is probably very interesting because I just don't know. I think if Wofford will – they can still throw the ball, but if they can try to run the ball just a little more and not throw 28 times, I think they've got a better chance of winning this game and still could be because I'm looking. I watched some of the Kennesaw State game. I'm looking at the roster. they still got the big bodies on the defensive line. They still can do some things, but they need the offense to be better. They need to not be three and outs. They need not to punt. They need better time possession. They need all of that. That being said, if they don't do that, then I think VMI is going to win this game. And it'll be tight because I just don't know that VMI is in a spot that they can blow people out. It'll be a seven-point, you know, anywhere from a four- to ten-point win for VMI, and it'll be a tough game. But I think if Wofford can run the football, then I think there can there can be some plays made, especially in Lexington, to where this game could be interesting and Wofford could win and still be somewhat of a player in the Southern Conference. For VMI, you have to win it to prove it's not a fluke, right? I mean, I don't know when the last time VMI beat Wofford twice, or did they play last year? I don't even know if they played last year. Either way, I can't even remember the last time VMI beat Wofford. If it wasn't in the spring, I can't tell you the last time VMI beat Wofford. And I can tell you another team might beat Wofford's ETSU. So a couple of teams really want to get off the schneid of not being able to beat the Terriers. But I think if Ironside plays, I think he gives them as good a shot as – Seth Morgan, and really watching Morgan last year take over for Udinsky and now Ironside for Morgan, as I've already stated, I think that proves that VMI is a legitimate contender this year because they've gotten to the point where the depth at key positions is there. Only defensively are they a little worse, and right now Wofford's not proving they can put a lot of points on the board. It's going to be interesting to see, and it was in the press conference this Monday compelling to hear Will Huzzy talk about how he feels a better connection with Tyler Idell, the quarterbacks this year, and how he is enjoying that they're trusting the receivers to go up and get the ball. And those 50-50s, those deep routes, those situations where the receivers haven't necessarily won on the one-on-one or one-versus-two or whatever the defense is, and the ball's still thrown. And that allows a Will Huzzy to go and make the crazy one-handed catches, to go and lay out and make these unbelievable snags. I don't think there's anyone better, as you mentioned, I would completely agree, in the league than Jacob Harris at the receiver position. And so if you're Colin Ironside, don't you have to take that same approach as Tyler Idell has, as the quarterbacks have for ETSU this year, to just throw the ball up from time to time and let a guy that's, what is he, like 6'5", 220, 230, I mean, just absurd size and has proven – that he, in a situation, whether it's one versus one, one versus two, can go and get the ball at its apex. You have to be able to do that. You have to take some of those – you have to have less reservations. You have to take some of the blinders off of, oh, i got to throw the safe ball. That's where I think a lot of quarterbacks that come into this situation get in trouble. And VMI is known for its, you know, underneath pass game and, you know, making it, I think, relatively easy on quarterbacks, making it a system-type approach. But when you have a Jacob Harris, that's kind of a waste. 
yes, he is effective over the line of scrimmage, but he's really effective when he's able to use his physicality and get you into positive positions in big chunk plays. I think that's going to be a big thing uh, for VMI as they, if they have to make this transition from Morgan to Ironside, uh, at least for a couple of weeks. You know, will he be able to take the same approach that Tyler Idell has? Yes, we're going to break down Western Carolina and Gardner-Webb because you know that the Catamounts and their fans would be furious, especially going into a game that all of a sudden, by the way, actually looks like it is a big challenge for a lot of teams with Gardner-Webb because I don't know about you, but what I remember about Gardner-Webb is a team that got blown out by ETSU, probably the most complete game that ETSU had played in their first six seasons of football, 45 to nothing on homecoming in the 2018 championship season. That's what I remember about Gardner-Webb. But Gardner-Webb is now receiving votes in the national poll. All of a sudden, there are people out there that are believing in the running Bulldogs And I guess I don't completely know where that's coming from because you look at their lead-up to where they are now, and there isn't necessarily anything that would indicate they're about to turn the corner and be a top 25 team. Uh, Now, I guess it's easy to see where it comes from because they have a couple of results against FBS teams that are not embarrassing, right? Like, I think they kept it within four scores against Charlotte, and they took uh, with Georgia Southern – down to the wire, you know, and so they didn't win those games, uh, but they were close. They were in the contest, and so they turned some heads that way. Trey Lamb's her head coach, and if that rings a bell, that's Bobby Lamb's son. Ah. And so Trey was a quarterback, and I, I just had to look it up. I, I knew it was an OVC school. It was Tennessee Tech. I couldn't remember off the top of my head, but I had to look it up. But Trey was an outstanding quarterback at Tennessee Tech, um, was actually the quarterback at Tech, I think when Billy Taylor was just got there as the defense coordinator, a little overlap there. But Trey Lamb does some things offensively because that's what his dad did. And his dad's, you know, you say what you want to about Bobby Lamb, but Bobby can coach some offense, can get some points on the board, you know, can do some things. So I think he's got certainly learned some stuff from there, was an assistant for his dad at Mercer for a few years, then went to Gardner-Webb, uh, was assistant at Tennessee Tech where he played. So fairly young guy. And my thing is he's probably using the young energy, right, because his la- he graduated in 2012. So you're talking about a guy in his early 30s, mid-30s, whatever, um, running a program right now. My guess he's probably getting some energy going, um, and they're probably feeding off the young energy. Now, they have not had the results that would screen to me get top 25 votes. Western imp- impressed me last week. Um, number one, I, I will say this – and I know that you look at Kerwin Bell and his career, he's he's coaching winners, and I think he was smart in bringing Rogan Wells, who was with him at Valdosta State, won the national championship. And for local fans, if that name rings a bell, he spent a year at Tusculum last year before going to Western Carolina. I mean, he threw for 300-plus and then ran for 120 yards in the game against Sanford. Some design runs, some him just making plays. So – Having a quarterback that can run the system and do things can keep you in games. And then watching their defense, and I know that some were gifts, but to watch their defense be able to make plays and do some things, there's some momentum for Western that if they win this Gardner-Webb game, it, they could be a hard out for Southern Conference teams. Now, for Gardner-Webb, if they come in there creatively offensive, able to um, kind of step on West Carolina early, then maybe West Carolina's a year or two away. Um, still, with a quarterback putting up numbers like that, then certainly 
I mean, I can't. I don't even know the last time ETSU had a guy throw for 301. Probably Todd Wells. That's how long ago that was in the mid 90s. Is the only guy I can think of that threw for 300 and ran. Unless Austin did it against Kentucky Wesleyan. I can't think of a guy did it in, against an, a like FCS team. He had a he had 434 against Furman. Hey, he didn't run for 100 that game though. Oh no, absolutely. Not. Right, right, but, but I don't I'm, think he ever had a 100 yard rush. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. He, he actually, he has, yeah, yeah, he actually had the quarterback run record for. Uh, if it was Kentucky Wesleyan, had like 137 oh, come yards. On. Yeah, yeah, like 137 yards. Yeah. So, but against an FCS team, I, I can't think of a ETSU quarterback that has done that. And so already, Rogan Wells in his first Southern Conference game was able to do that against the Sanford Bulldogs. So this is a game I will pay a lot of attention to, um, just to see where Western is at. And honestly, it's good to see Gardner Webb uh, be able to do something because you know they're right there in Bowling Springs. They're right. I don't know, 15 minutes away from, I think it's Wofford, and, you know, 35 minutes away from Furman or vice versa. They're just all kind of right there bunched up. So if they could get good, that would also add to some non-conference games around the league. That would be interesting. Gardner-Webb hasn't had a winning season since 2013, but they, again, lost to Georgia Southern by just five, hung tough with Charlotte for a half. And give them credit. I don't think they're there yet. Obviously, the coaches poll, coaches disagree. But only 45 penalty yards per game. Only two turnovers the entire season, and in that game against Georgia Southern, starting quarterback Bailey Fisher had 315 yards and three scores. So it could be a good chance for the Catamounts to at least turn a head or two. Keep in mind, in the spring, they had eight losses, and only one of them was by less than 17 points. Obviously, total turnover here with Kerwin Bell, and I give them credit because you have heard me say off-air and I didn't want to put this on the record, and now I see why, that they would not score 100 points as an offense the entire season. And I think they're approaching right about 100 through three games. And a lot of that is because of Rogan Wells. Now, they do have a lot back. Uh, quarterback position, no, but they bring in Wells, who's averaging almost six yards a carry as well. Leading rusher Donovan Spencer transferred to Southern Illinois, so they didn't have him back. But Makai Stanley, um, T.J. Jones, and Kenny Benjamin are the ones uh, carrying the ball, uh, mostly along with Wells. Um, 224 of the 230 passing attempts are gone, but again, Wells has stepped right in uh, from Valdosta State. As you mentioned, 15 of the top 18 tacklers are back. So it's not like the cabinet was totally empty for Western, and I think you're right. I think that Kerwin Bells find a nice mix of, okay, these guys are who I can trust, but I've also opened up positions, and if there are people that are coming in that are flat out better. You know, 15 of the top 18 tacklers are back, but every position is open, right? You're not going to go with an, a 1-8 team from – the 2020-21 season and say, oh, guys, you know, I'm here and I'm just going to support you and we'll make this transition slowly. He's come in and made sure that guys are not comfortable and made guys compete. And I think that's created for Western a culture that is not of one that will be easily dispatched, right? Like it's not going to be an easy out every week. So the two guys they brought in, and I don't believe they're related, uh, they're both Williams. One, C.J. Williams. They're not related. A transfer from Alabama. Right. And then the other one is a transfer from Tusculum, who played, Raphael Williams, who played with Wells. And the speed on those two guys, it jumps off the page. Then you add in Daquan Patton. You know, you add in, um, oh, gosh. Uh, Calvin Jones, Raquan oh, Heath. Yes, thank you. Raquan Heath. You, uh, those guys all ran all over the field and made plays. So there is speed on that side of the ball. And then on the – Ronald Kent on defense, cornerback, he's still one of the best. He was in all league, I think, last year for a team that wasn't very good. So 
They've got some guys that can make plays. But I think offensively, when you have the quarterback that can do it and he runs, then obviously you can get some plays down the field. But it also helps that they threw one of the 53-yard touchdown passes was basically a 10-yard crosser, and they just outran everybody for a touchdown. I mean, you, those plays help right when you're able to do it. So West Carolina, I'm pretty excited about this game to see exactly where they fall because watching the game, and I know Sanford – is a tough team because they can make people look great when they're not. So that's why I'm kind of curious on what Western will do because some of the other non-conference games, they didn't look as good. But I don't know. Is this because this is game three and they've got some, you know, a, a couple games under their belt, they're getting more comfortable? Is it just Samford and they give up 500 yards of offense because that's just what they do? I'll be curious to see what happens against Gardner. Well, throw out the Oklahoma game, obviously. It was a what, yes, I didn't even mention that. Then. But – Eastern Kentucky, I mean, they lost by three and Sanford by five. So they've been right there. It's been interesting to see what they've done in the passing game. And let's be clear here, Raphael Williams is probably the league's best receiver, at least statistically to this point, a couple of 132-yard games. They've thrown, it a, they've thrown it a ton to Benjamin and T.J. Jones. So they've worked in the running backs in the passing game really extensively, 25 combined receptions. So – Really interesting to see what they're doing in the passing game. I think it's designed well. I think Rogan Wells, yes, he has five interceptions he's thrown so far. Not great, right? But he's able to do some things with his feet. You are going to have trouble making him one-dimensional. And so this is a lot more dangerous of a squad than I ever thought it would be. And we're already, you know, what, only three games in. So there's a lot to be, I think, excited about. Maybe not in terms of the win-loss column this year for Western Carolina, but there's going to be some exciting football played. I think you're going to start to see some building blocks towards more successful season. Just one liner on Chattanooga. They outgained Kentucky, outphysicaled. It's the second SOCON team to just punch an SEC team in the mouth, 171 to 102. Kentucky had a miracle 95-yard interception return for a touchdown as Chat was getting ready to take the lead in the last minute to escape the victory. And Chattanooga was picked high in the league because of defense and running and the running game, and it – showed in that game. It didn't show, I think, necessarily in the first game against Austin P. North Alabama it did, but certainly against Kentucky. It seems like Chattanooga could be hitting their stride. And the only seat hotter than Josh Conklin was Brent Thompson down at the Citadel. Ooh. They got destroyed earlier this year, Charleston Southern. And uh, their only wins against a non-D1, so we'll see how Coach Thompson, who was getting a lot of heat when we were down there last year after ETSU won, that seat's got to be getting a little hotter as uh, the wins continue not to mount up for him. Tano sidekick. What are we doing next? You should not tell me. I'm not telling you. Okay. You gotta wait 30 more seconds. You've waited for. Wait, there's one network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Santos and the sidekick, new segment, you're up. Well, I realize now I probably should have made a bumper for this because it's going to be a recurring segment for play the open. like eight weeks. Yeah, right? Um, 
for like eight weeks we're going to be doing this, and multiple times per week at some point. We mentioned it earlier. We're men of the people. You know that. Yeah. We listen. Love people. When people talk. And they don't love us, but we love them. What I think we need to do, because this city and ETSU fans love basketball. True. There's no question about that. We need to talk basketball essentially every show. At least every other show once a week to make sure that we are giving basketball the attention that it deserves. Now, this idea cropped up this summer when ETSU Hoops Nation, you can find them on Twitter, ETSU Hoops Nation, tweeted out a Courtney Pegram game winner back from the mid-2000s. Firstly, follow them, again, on Twitter, at ETSU Hoops Nation. You won't find more over-the-top, non-stop positivity out of an ETSU fan <laughs> than that one. Are you, am I right? I mean, that, Love that's, John. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, do. way over-the-top, and it's awesome. Uh, our guy Ben Parrish, at ETSU Buckeye on Twitter, huge fan in his own right. Then brings me into the conversation, says, Vintage J-Clips are great at Mike underscore Galley 21. That's me on Twitter. Follow me. Follow ETSU Bucks Voice on Twitter as well. Shameless plugs. Find us some more Jay Sandoz vintage calls. I agree. This is a genius idea. I knew you'd be a fan. Nobody loves me more than me. As mentioned, I do not answer to anyone within these walls more than I answer to the people. The people Mm -hmm. speak. Mm -hmm. I listen. I sacrifice and humbly do so, obviously, as well. So I start down the path to finding vintage Sandoz and Buccaneer basketball clips, and I have to say, I'm pretty happy with what I found because there's a lot probably to choose from. There is to an extent. Okay. So I was hoping for a few more from way back in the day, like early 2000s, but our radio archives don't quite go that far back. I'm obviously blaming you for that. So I think I have a cassette tape of the Greensboro <laughs> from 02 or 03 I could probably great. find. Can you, can you take that somewhere? Jay prepubescent. You, oh you, you keep talking. I think it's over here in the corner. Yeah, go ahead. You, you get your search on, and we can go back to this one. So I did have to settle for the last 10-plus years in what we are going to call Buck Basketball Buzzer Beater Blowouts. We are emptying the archives. All of the buzzer beaters ETSU has had in whatever year we are combing through. Basically from 2008 up until about now. Now, an important distinction. I am considering buzzer beaters as the following. Any shot... From open play with under 20 seconds left in regulation or overtime that one ETSU a game. No ties, so you can't have a game tying shot. No free throws, so you can't have a game that either gets tied or the Bucks go ahead within 20 seconds. From the free throw line, obviously just not quite as exciting. And honestly, we would have been able to add like a number of other games from the past to this segment, and we just don't have the time. Uh, had to come from open play and with under 20 seconds left. Look at those six cassette tapes. I see six. And that's just the ones you grab. There's like three boxes over there. I'm not sure you're going to find it, but... Oh, no, I've got some good semifinal games. I'm looking for the UNCG specifically because it was a block shot at the buzzer. That doesn't count. By, oh, it has to be a made. Can't be a defensive play. Again, I'll go over the yes, criteria. Please again. do. Buzzer beaters are considered as the following. Any shot from open play with under 20 seconds left in regulation or overtime that won ETSU a game. So, good point by you. A block shot, would that count? No. Because if we get to the defensive side, then I can think of like three right off the top of my head, including, what, New Year's Day two years ago, Isaiah Tisdale knocks them all the way from Wofford 49-48 final. So it has to be a shot from open play, under 20 seconds left in regulation or overtime, that won ETSU a game. 
what do you think of Buck basketball buzzer beater blah? Did I go too far, not far enough, or is this the nice in between where we can celebrate the past and get how many Jay B's is, is that? Is that five or calling it B five? What are we? Yes, uh, B to the fifth. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. Buck basketball buzzer beater blowout. So this week we're just going to play the buzzer beater that started this entire segment, the furthest back buzzer beater that we have from our archives. And I had to actually grab this one from YouTube from the video that was posted by ETSU Hoops Nation because we didn't have this in our radio archives. Bigger, trying to get a pick from Brad Knuckles. Bigger does. They went for Brad Knuckles open. Courtney wants to set a pick. Casey Long playing some defense. Juan's really going to hurry. Twilly to Courtney Bigger for the game and to make himself a legend. Courtney Bigger Obviously, we're going to celebrate the calls and the teams and the players, but part of the reason that I want to go back and do this is to hear your thoughts on not only the games and the event, but what was going into that call and that moment. Okay, first of all, can you? I, I want to see if you can play it again because I want to see if you pick up on Murray – or not Murray Bartow. Um, yeah, Murray Bartow collapses hands and kind of stomps his feet because they're not getting into the play. I think you can hear it on the court. Let's listen. Bigger trying to get a pick from Brad Knuckles. Courtney Bigger does. They left Brad Knuckles open. Courtney wants to set a pick. Casey Long playing some defense. Juan's really going to hurt. Twilly to Courtney Bigger for the game and no, to make himself a legend. So here's what I remember. One, they did, the play was not ran. They were trying to get basically a back screen, and I don't remember um, – who was supposed to set the back screen, but they're supposed to get a back screen for Pegram to either go to the rim or then go to the corner for a shot. And at some point, the play broke down, and Coach Bartow claps his hand, kind of stomped his foot, and then basically was like, throw it over here. So I give it to Pegram. He's like 28 feet away from the hoop, takes one dribble, maybe didn't take a dribble, just fires from NBA range and just takes one from the bench, rolls the dice on, well, I'll just do it myself and then was able to uh, knock down a shot against Chattanooga, and you know how I feel about that. ETSU would go on to the Atlantic Sun Tournament final later that year after winning the A-Sun regular season championship with an 18-2 and league record, but would get smacked by Belmont 92-67 to in that final, finishing their season with a 64-57 to loss in the NIT to Clemson. In response to the original tweet that was sent by ETSU Hoops Nation, you said, quote, one of my best calls ever. I have to agree. I think it's a very good one. So good, in fact that I'm willing to look past the fact that you believed a sophomore at the time, Courtney Pegram, made himself a legend by hitting a shot that came in the fourth game of the 2006-07 season in the middle of November. Seems like odd timing to claim someone had just cemented their legend status, but I will give you this. Courtney did become a legend, one of just three bucks to score 2,000 career points. Middle of November, made himself a legend. I, I don't, what, one, if you beat Chattanooga on any buzzer, okay, first of all, <laughs> ever, I, ever, I'll, I'll just point, say this. It could be July. You know my very good friend, A.J. Caldwell? <laughs> AJ Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a game. That's not ever going to stray too far. He's not going to be in any legend of Chattanooga basketball lore for his actual where he finished in anything. But everyone will remember the shot for him. Casey Jones is another guy who is a, a legend for Chattanooga, and every time that anniversary comes up, Brooke Savage, who was on the Chattanooga staff, now he's no longer on ETSU, will send me a reminder now of the Casey Jones shot from the U of ETSU. So let me assure you, in the lore of ETSU and Chattanooga, if you hit any game winner, whether you are or are not legendary, you will be a legend for hitting those shots. 
So uh, I also felt bad that there were actually two buzzer beaters against UNCG, and I brought up the wrong one. Brad Knuckles on ESPN2. It was the only game on ESPN2 that year for ETSU in the same season. Tap in at the buzzer. They had to go to the replay to make sure that it counted. It did, and ETSU won. And I don't. So there's two, and I don't remember uh, because I can't find the archive fast enough if ETSU scored under 20 seconds and then got the block shot because that would that would classify as a buzzer beater. No, I'm still also. Jay Sandoz has to be on the call. True, because true. I got to find the tape of these. That's right. There I have to find the, the, I have cassette tapes of this year. I got to find it. There were some games that you did not do over the years, randomly. And in fact, I think there was one full year where you did not do home games. And there was, I think, one or two buzzer beaters in that year where I was like, eh, as much as we love the man that we so affectionately uh, created a bumper after. <laughs> Tucked away in the northeast corner of the U.S., there is a small town where tomorrow never comes. A quiet place with a majestic hall brick-and-mortar temple to the American game. No, not that one. <laughs> Welcome to Bauer Cooperstown with Kyle Cooper. That's one of the greatest, that is one of the greatest bumpers we ever had. <laughs> Never got to use it. He just moved to Minnesota. We loved it, really? Yeah, got a job up there. Really? Doing a radio Good game. Good for yeah. him. Good yeah. for him. Wow, we traded places. Uh, yeah. So, we did not... Yes, half a season. He to use that, but he did a full season of home games, right? It was conference games because I did, I, I did the rare Tennessee home basketball game, and Dick Sanders, AD, was like, yeah, I like you on the, on the TV call. We're going to put you on TV for home games. Right. And so for that year, um, just conference games that year, I did the TV call. Yeah, so sorry, Kyle Cooper. Uh, we love you and everything else, but uh – he was formerly in this position, and I am going to be very protective of the Jay Sandoz calls versus the Kyle Cooper calls. So uh, that is what Buck Basketball Buzzer Beater Blowout will feature throughout the next two months or so. And the idea is we end this segment right around the time that basketball starts. It's a countdown, should we say, to ETSU men's basketball's season opener, which is why do I not remember right now? Jay Sandoz. Tell me when the season opener is. I'm going to look it up very, very quick. We'll the 19th, maybe? Ba, 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 ba. Wrong. The 12th. 12th. The season opener at home is the 18th against USC Upstate, but the 12th at Appalachian mm. State. Then we're at Tennessee. And so we got to get this done by November 11th, which is our last show before the season opener on Kay. the 12th. Maybe even that Monday because we're obviously going to preview Appalachian State on November 11th. So Buck Basketball, buzzer beater blowout. By the way, that call, as much as I – make fun of the legendary part uh, because clearly, yes, Courtney Pegram did become a legend, and I knew that your Chattanooga reasoning would be what it was. Regardless of what I think of any of your calls ever, or as in pros versus Jays on Monday, Robert Harper's calls ever, at least you did not do this. Something I meant to play for you Monday at the end of pros versus Jays. Joseph, Play-by-play man, but boy, a tough moment. He has a great Sirius XM show in the 
it's, I don't know if it's summertime or full season, but it is spectacular that I listen to him on that. So big time. Yes, the only thing I can think of that uh, that went the wrong way uh, for Tennessee fans around here, John Ward, the, the legendary John Ward at Notre Dame, called the game-winning field goal for Notre Dame good first, and it was actually no good, so they won the game. But there was a, it is good, Tennessee. Oh, no, wait, it is no good. And you get the opposite. But I can, oh. I can proudly say I don't think out of all the things I've done, I don't think I've called um, – I think I've, I think we've all in baseball maybe called a home run that wasn't or wasn't it was or something. You're not sure if a guy made the catch, didn't make a catch over the wall or fair foul or whatever. I think that's a little more – that's different. I don't think I've ever misidentified a game-winning kick or a made game-winning basket or – Something. That was from Sunday against the Arizona Cardinals in Arizona. Greg Joseph, who had made a couple of big kicks the previous week against Cincinnati, and obviously you're very far away from the play in an NFL stadium. Yes. But especially on radio, you got to wait for the good or no good, right? you yeah. got to wait. But unfortunately for Paul Allen, who, again, an absolute legend and does great work, he did not. Uh, and uh, I figured that would be a good way to round out more calls from you. I'm glad you've never done that because if I were listening to that live, I think I would have jumped through the radio and punched Paul Allen right in the face. <laughs> since, you're, since you're a Viking fan. Yes. All right, one segment to go. Bold prediction. Shohei Otani. I don't know if you heard this yet. He's going to pitch and hit. Mark it down. Plus 10 here. Hit a buck 20. There's not a soul that can stop the big three. Five, baby. Literally, the last person on earth that should ever be considered the U.S. national is JaVale McGee. NIL stands for never in life, and the never in life will NIL be a real thing. No, you can't. You cannot show me one guy more dedicated to the university than Damari Monsanto. He will go down. Predictions. I am winning. You are losing. Oh, losing. Loser. On that comeback, I'm one and six. Uh, you are three and loser. four. We've done two and a half weeks, kind of, because we did the one prediction, then we did mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. prediction. Mm-hmm. And we did the season-long predictions. I don't even know how those are going yet. Okay. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, yeah. Let's look. Bama and Clemson. No college football playoff games. Ooh, yet, I'm feeling though. real good about that, especially after hearing my next ball prediction. Three SoCon wins by one score or more, or more than one score, and that starts, obviously. Right, I'm very upset that I did not. Did not. Three right. overall may have been hot enough. Uh, 62% completion percentage this year. What oh, I had, I've not even checked that. Well, I know Tyler Idell going into the last game was 65%. Mm. And I don't think he did anything. What was he, 9-16? So maybe he did go down a couple of percentage points. Ooh, that's going to be close. Ooh, I'm excited. You said 62. 62.5. 62.5. But Brock Landis is at 50%. What is the Oh, G-man? overall is 60 even. Ah. 60 even. Oh. I said uh, four touchdowns in a game by a buck. Um, gosh, Jacob Saylor's and Quay Holmes, I think the last two weeks have combined for four touchdowns in those two games. Um, or four touchdowns each game. Uh, 
Tennessee three wins or less. How many do they have right now? They lost to Pittsburgh, but I think they've got two they got two to beat Tennessee win one SEC game. It's gonna be Now, there is something going in your favor. This week they are a, like, 19, 20-point underdog, and according to Phil Steele, since 1997, a team that is between 17 and 21 points, because he has a staff that can look all this up, uh, has an 8% chance of winning statistically. So. Well, or Florida. There may not be Vanderbilt. There may not be Vanderbilt. Really. Okay. Okay. Uh, this week, I'm going to go with 300 yards in the air for ETSU. That's happened just once in the Bucks' time of having football back. Funny enough, they went over 400 that day, too. Remember, it was Austin Herrick previously mentioned. Sure. 400 School record. Versus Furman and that wild 56-35 loss. I think they're going there again. 300 or more for the Bucks. And Tyler Idell, that would be his career high by, like, 93 yards if it was exactly 300. So, I think 207 is the high right now. Eight meetings. Never score more than 27. They will score 30 or more, and the vaunted two-score win or more for ETSU. Wow, two-score? 30 or more, more and a two-score. Wow, okay. Uh, those are the same predictions, so both have to happen? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Wisconsin triples the spread against Notre Dame, winning by 17 or more. The Irish completely unconvincing this year. Just three-point wins over Florida State. We know how that ended for them against Jacksonville State. And Toledo, plus a two-touchdown win over Purdue. None of those programs are good. Camp Randall will be rocking. Jack Cohn doesn't have a brand. Just in case you thought I wasn't tripling down on Clemson not making the playoffs, they will lose this week <laughs> as a 10-point road favorite to NC State. The Wolfpack will knock off the Tigers Why and effectively <laughs> end all discussion of a playoff. North Carolina State is going to realize quickly that Clemson is not Furman. Uh, the most points scored in an NFL game this year is 74 by the 49ers in Detroit in the league's opening week. Two games will have 80-plus this week. Seahawks, Vikings, and Bucks, Rams. I'm naming the exact games. Seahawks, Vikings, and Buckshirts. Let's talk about Arkansas. I got a family member, Razorback, right? Lived in Fable for a long time in the Air Force. Huge Razorback. When he starts gawking, because he never gawks, I'm going to buy in. They're going to knock off Texas A&M. Not only going to beat Texas, they're going to own the whole state of Texas in the Southwest Conference old school. They will win the Southwest, the Southwest Conference title. That doesn't really exist, but it does now. Arkansas, the Underdog at home, I'm taking two dogs at home to win outright. What was the, okay, the prediction was Arkansas. Arkansas. Okay. <laughs> Arkansas. The Southwest title, they in the SWAC now. What's going on? The Southwest title, you, you're too young to remember They would that. win the SWAC. Or the Southwest, which was the old Texas, Texas A&M, Arkansas, that before the Big 12 and all that. Oh, was, really? We, yeah, they were on the same conference. You Houston, SMU. Age, you, uh, yeah, I mean, I cannot believe you didn't know that. <laughs> all right. That's Santos' sidekick. We'll be back with you on Monday. We'll recap all my rights. Wrongs will retire both predictions after I go 3 0. Buccaneers for the network. Cowboy up, go play ball.